getting real fidgety. We need some distractions. Who am I? I'm a human too. I'm just like you with ASD. Who am I? I'm a human too. I'm just like you. Hello everyone and welcome to Autism Stories where we connect you with amazing people that help teens and adults with autism become more independent and successful. I'm your host Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. I hope everyone had a happy Thanksgiving. Um, Thanksgiving I think can definitely be a time of re reflection uh, to reflect on our strengths, and things that maybe we want to improve. So in terms of this podcast, I think continuing to help this evolve and make it more interesting and exciting, particularly in the beginning and the conclusion of the podcast is what I'm going to aim to do. But I think the strength of the podcast um, has and will continue to be uh, the interviews from wonderful and talented people we get to talk with. And, and today, that's not going to be any different. Um, we are going to be having an important discussion today with Anne Tapia about self-awareness and trauma. Anne obtained her undergraduate degree in psychology from The Ohio State University and graduate degree in social work from the University of Cincinnati. She became the coordinator of the Regional Autism Advisory Council of Southwest Ohio in 2016. Her experience includes working with children and families within the child welfare, juvenile justice, developmental disabilities, and mental health community. Anne's work has included developing, implementing, and administering services within the home and school environments for children and young adults with intense needs, including people with autism spectrum disorder. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. And thank you for uh, joining us today. It's great to see you. You too. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be part of your podcast. So I learned in doing uh, research that we share something in common, that we both uh, went to Ohio, the Ohio State University. That's right. Go Bucks. Go Bucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's another podcast. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we both studied psychology. So for me, it was a matter of wanting to know what was wrong with my brain and trying to gain a level of self-awareness. So why... What was the motivation for you in studying psychology? So a bit of the same, but also just my own roots of growing up in a United Methodist church where social justice is a huge focus and um, just even my own family, giving back is what you do. And mm -hmm. so um, to me, I wanted to be able to find a career in something that I feel passionate about and that's definitely in being with others and finding ways to be in service with others. Um, but then also in my teenage years, there's, you know, that angst that we all go through was probably amplified for me. So um, dealt with some depression and was really confused about why 
you know, on the surface, I looked like I had everything together, and yet I didn't feel like I had everything together. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to do some of my own self-exploration, like you were saying, and um, try to better understand why people do what they do and, and have a sense of empathy around where people are coming from. And so psychology was the direction I went for undergrad. Um, ended up getting into the field, um, really took a mental health direction, even though the very first person that I worked with um, was duly diagnosed. And so it really kept me in this realm of both developmental disabilities and mental health. Um, and then, so as I went back to school for graduate work, I went into the social work field just because there were lots of experiential opportunities that said social work was more of the path that made sense for me. So I veered a bit from the psychology, but still, still the same realm of helping people and understanding how we tick and what's going on neurologically and all of that fascinating stuff for me if, if you're a nerd like me. <laughs> right. So after you graduated from Ohio State, did you immediately go into social work or what was that process? I didn't. I was in the field for about 10 years. Um, my very first job would have been in Arizona. I was living in Arizona at the time and was an intensive case manager for children. Mm -hmm. Um, so really serving those who had the most significant need um, and ended up moving back to the Ohio area because of family and um, my mom's health was at the time not so great and so needed to be back with family um, but it was um, it was really kind of that experience of being in the field that led me into the social work direction instead so and I skipped a piece there, but um, while I was in school at The Ohio State, I was working for as a direct support professional, so working with individuals with developmental disabilities, but as I mentioned, it was the people that, were, um, that I was supporting tended to have a lot going on, a lot mm -hmm. of complex needs, um, and so it was that first initial experience with those individuals that really kind of sowed a seed for serving people with developmental disabilities and mental health needs so um, and I'm grateful for it because it kind of kept me even though a lot of the work that I did um, in the mental health world maybe didn't have a direct impact on the developmental disabilities and mm -hmm. everything that I was doing there was always this kind of going back to my roots in terms of what about people who have developmental disabilities and, and what are we doing because they have mental health needs too so mm -hmm. let's make sure that we're serving everyone um, and that we're building expertise in that area because a lot of people in the mental health side will say they don't understand developmental disabilities and they feel like they're not the right person to provide support or treatment and we can't do that. There are far too many people with mental yeah. health needs. We need to build up our expertise and we need to get to a place where we lean on one another's expertise and, um, and grow. Uh, you know, and, and when, you're, when it's out of your scope, then lean on somebody who does feel like they have that capacity to right, because there's so much comorbidity, isn't there? That's right, absolutely. And same side with developmental disabilities. There are a lot of people in the developmental disability world who say, I don't understand the mental health needs that are going on. And so um, it, there's just, there's a huge need to be able to lean on both sides and use each other's expertise and 
we all are supporting the same people no matter what. So let's yeah. make sure we're doing the best that we can by right. growing our own level of understanding and what people need. Mm-hmm. So. so present day, you're famous for being the coordinator for the Regional Autism Advisory Council. I don't know about famous, but yes, I do carry that title. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so for those that, that are listening that aren't familiar with um, the Regional Autism Advisory Council, or RAC, as mm-hmm. it's also known, uh, why don't you share a little bit about what RAC is and what what all you do? Yeah, so I have the privilege to be in a very unique role where I bring together people in the Southwest Ohio on the autism subject. So I try to have public sector, private sector, family members, individuals with autism all come together at the table and we talk about what we have in our community, the things that we don't have in our community, how we can build up to best practice, and when we identify those gaps, what we can do about it. Um, So it's really kind of a community organization standpoint of working within the autism community. Um, We, because we're identifying a lot of gaps, a lot of times we're considering what kinds of trainings we can offer. So both the facilitation of trainings to organizations or to schools, uh, and then also bringing in experts, whether that's local or national or international, who can speak to what we identify in terms of gaps in our community and how we can just grow the capacity. Um, So we've done all sorts of different capacity building opportunities from training community members like our first responders to our school personnel to um, organizations like women, infants, and children who just are finding themselves working with people with autism on a more regular basis and they wanted to think about how to better set up their um, environment and their approach in serving both parents and children. So um, really it's a community response to um, a systems perspective of supporting individuals with autism across the lifespan and across the the spectrum. So regardless of, you know, we really try to address those who are severely impacted and those who are not as um, not as impacted by autism. So if someone wants to get involved in RAC, what are the different types of opportunities that are available? So we have a number of different task force meetings that everybody is welcome to. Um, you don't have to be a member to be a partner in this community. So we have four county task force meetings, one in Butler, Claremont, Hamilton, and Warren County. And those um, are a wide range in terms of the people who are at the table. We have developmental disability representatives, we have school personnel, educational service center personnel, um, family members again, um, and then private provider organizations who come to those meetings. Um, And we talk about everything from what kinds of trainings and resources are available within the community. Um, Organizations can share what they're doing and new services that they're offering, um, programs that are either changing or ways that they're trying to reinvent themselves or just reminding folks of what kinds of services they have to offer. And, And that, I would say, is the number one piece that people tell me they enjoy out of coming to RAC meetings is hearing about resources and sharing with one another, being able to network with people that maybe you have an email address for, but when you come to a meeting, you get a face-to-face interaction with folks. Um, And then we also try to bring in some policy as well. So what's happening locally at a state level and at a national level, and how does that impact us? 
Um, so if legislation is coming about or if there's um, ideas for legislation that's kind of in the works that we can have some stakeholder input to, we, I try to bring that back to the group so that people are aware of what's going on um, nationally at a state level and how that impacts us locally. Um, beyond those kind of regional task force meetings, we have some age-specific groups. So we have an early intervention task force, a transition age, uh, which is kind of your 14 through 22-ish <laughs> age range, and then we have an adult task force as well. Um, and those are people from across our Southwest Ohio area coming together, sharing resources again. Um, and the agendas of what each of those um, groups may be talking about are really kind of variable based on what the community need may be. So for example, right now with early intervention, we've had a big um, focus on how the opioid epidemic has been impacting the early intervention system and how, you know, we as a collective group can be supporting one another, what kinds of resources exist, that sort of thing. Um, and then of course, you know, the older age range would have different topics that they're focusing on. Um, we have a new committee that has recently formed called the Safety Initiative, which is really out of our safety series that we did in April of 2018, this past April. We, um, we started that because we wanted to train first responders. And so as we started to work with those first responders, we learned so much information that we thought, this isn't, we, we can't consider this accomplished if we just train first responders. We really need to train the community in how to prepare for emergencies, what they can expect when they're engaging with first responders in those crisis situations. You know, what can they do? What should they um, not, you know, what are the myths that maybe they have about what first responders should be or could be doing that perhaps they can't do? Um, and so we had that safety series form and, and we did four different trainings and from that, there was so much momentum and feedback from those who participated or provided expertise that we recognized this can't just be a one-and-done deal. We need to continue the safety conversation. So we're really just beginning what that can look like, but um, hopeful to, again, kind of take that resource hub mentality that RAC is and put that in a safety perspective. So as we think about some of the other organizations, I mean, safety is universal no matter who you are. Sure. Um, so what is it that other organizations are doing and how do we share the wealth of resources and opportunity into the community so that people can really make the most of what's out there? Um, so I'm excited about that one being a new one. And then in terms of getting involved, uh, anybody is welcome. So it's a matter of reaching out to find out when and where those individual task force meetings are happening. But if you can't be there physically, I always offer a virtual opportunity. So go to meeting, um, either a phone call or a link that you can log on if you have web access so that you can still listen in and participate and chime in whenever you can um, in terms of the resources and questions and conversation. And I've definitely taken advantage of the virtual uh the GoToMeeting app on my phone is very easy to use. <laughs> Good. I'm glad you said that, and we love having you. I think it's wonderful because we have a kind of perspective of Southwest Ohio because that's who's here in our area, but it's so nice to be able to pull in some of the ideas of our state on a, a broader mm -hmm. level and just the community as a whole, you know, where we are um, across 
the country and across the world. So it's it's good to have lots of perspective, yeah. and I appreciate you being part of them. Yeah, it's it's been very helpful. So if if someone is interested in getting involved in RAC, how do they go about contacting you? Yeah, so my email address is Ann, A-N-N-E dot Tapia, T-A-P-I-A, at cchmc.org. Um, or you're welcome to give me a call. My office number is 513-636-7616. Um, and I'd be glad to figure out where best to plug you in. Usually when someone says they want to be part of my... Uh, part of the Regional Autism Advisory Council, I'll figure out which task force makes the most sense for that person and then add them onto that email group list. So then you start receiving the email reminders of, hey, our next meeting is blah, blah, blah date. Here's where we're meeting. Here's our go-to meeting link. Um, and then also I'll share out the meeting minutes after that meeting happens so that if you can't make it for whatever reason, um, you can still kind of stay up to date about what's happening and what information was shared during those meetings. That's right. So I wanted to talk to you today a lot about uh, self-awareness and trauma. So in terms of self-awareness, um, I saw that RAC is going to have an all-day uh, training uh, regarding interoception. Um, so for those that don't know what that is, maybe explain what it is, what is it. And yeah, so we are very excited to be bringing in an international speaker. Her name is Kelly Mahler. And she wrote the book, Interoception, the Eighth Sensory Sense. Um, the idea of interoception is that we all have messages that our body is sending to us every day, all day long. And interoception is the concept that we, one, receive that message, understand what we do with it, and act on it. Um, so those who have uh, challenges with interoception either are over-interpreting what their body messages are telling them or they're not interpreting them um, <laughs> as well as they should, yeah. right? So the messages that we get on a regular basis can be anything from, my stomach is growling, I'm hungry, I'm going to go get some food so that I feel better, right. um, to I need to use the restroom, to emotional reactions that, you know, something that you've just said to me makes me nervous and so my palms are sweating or my face is getting red and, and what do I do with that? How do I calm myself down? Um, so it's this concept of recognizing your body signals and then what Kelly does an excellent job of, both in her book and what she'll share with us in person, will be some tips on how we help individuals better recognize those signals and give them clues to be able to tap into some changes when they need to provide an intervention for themselves. Mm -hmm. Both that recognition of, oh, my body's telling me something, and then second step, here's what I need to do about it. Um, so it's, it's an exciting um, topic that I think is kind of new to the autism field, but when you really look into it, and I would encourage people to check out a, um, Kelly's website, um, there's a ton of videos out there. There's hmm. some helpful articles on the topic of interoception, and um, it really makes a lot of sense for understanding a person with autism, mm -hmm. especially some of those kind of invisible components where you see yeah. somebody react in a way that doesn't make sense to you, and you can't understand how that person got from A to B. But if you kind of take a step back and you think of it from an interoception perspective of their body just gave them a signal that either they interpreted in a way that maybe wasn't on track 
or they didn't interpret that body signal at all and they went in a totally different direction. So it really helps you kind of think about how can I support that person so that they better understand what their body is telling them and then do something about those messages. And we really can't um, kind of meet our basic needs if we're not identifying, the. I guess that's the first step, right? Identifying that I have this need right now. Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think even taking it back to the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, your very basic, you know, food, shelter, sleep, all of those basic things that we need to, all of us need to address if we can't get those basic things accomplished. We're never going to get to that self-actualization <laughs> triangle that, you know, ideally everybody is striving for, right? So it's kind of that initial step, but even interoception will address those emotional aspects of it too. So um, even if you aren't hungry, you know, maybe perhaps you may be understanding the hunger or the sleep or the, um, you know, body sensations that you need to be responding to, but perhaps what's a struggle for you might be more of that emotional aspect of understanding um, when you're getting angry or when you're getting sad and how to manage that emotion in a way that's more helpful in social situations. So I think one of the th one of the most important thing is so many times people don't know where to go for resources, and I feel like RAC is a helpful organization in helping people find those resources. So maybe talk a little bit about maybe some of the barriers that people encounter and what what recommendations you have for people finding those resources. Yeah. So you're right. There um, there is a huge barrier in our community in terms of connecting what's out there, because I feel like there is a ton out there in terms of resources um, to the people who actually need those resources. And so I, I feel lucky in that I am so connected to all of these people in our community that when there are questions that come up, um, if I don't know the answer, I'm going to find somebody who might know the answer. Um, so I think a huge challenge to that resource connection piece is that programs, services, supports are constantly changing. So the minute that something goes out on paper, it's outdated. Um, and so it is really about getting connected. Um, and that can be very hard in the disability world in general because there's this kind of isolation that can happen yeah. for families especially who yeah. are just surviving, right? Yeah. Like it's the moment to moment, making sure that you're taking care of what's happening right now. And so it's hard to be forward thinking in terms of, you know, what kinds of resources and connections can I make so that life is better on a whole. Um, but it really is key to that emotional well-being and finding the resources that are necessary to make those day-to-day -day moments go easier. Right. Um, so I, I think... Um, taking opportunities and it doesn't have to be people who are connected to RAC it can be outside of that of course I try to bring as many people in as I possibly can um, but that doesn't mean that that's everyone at mm -hmm. the table and so I think you know encouraging families to make connections where they can whether that's with other family members or with other organizations programs services support groups online, really any opportunity that um, families have, and then just asking questions and asking for help when you need it. Um, it's, there's 
such a huge power in just admitting, hey, I need help, mm-hmm. and then somebody saying, let me see what I can do for you. Yeah. Um, and that takes a huge weight off of yeah. that stress and pressure that I think a lot of families face. Yeah. Certainly, I think that's really important because I think certainly we have some families that have great support networks, but I think the majority of them do not. And the bigger your support network is, the, the more likely you are to help your son or daughter. Absolutely right. I agree with that wholeheartedly. And again, a huge challenge in any family with um, you know major stressors in their life. There's this tendency to kind of want to go inward. Yeah. And um, reaching out can be a very hard step yeah. to take. Um, but critical in in everybody's well-being as you yeah. move forward. I mean, it's it's so much better to share that burden and to share that stress and to share the emotional aspect of what goes on with other people, even if it's somebody who's just a listening ear and maybe doesn't have the answers or the resources or the connections, but just the more you can reach out, the better um, in terms of finding some of those resources and getting to the connection stage of um, the supports and services that would be helpful for the person. Mm-hmm. I feel like I kind of went in a circle with that answer, but no, it's huge. Not. It's a yeah, huge it area, and yeah. um, and a big piece of why the rack role is so important is really finding opportunities to pull everybody together and share those resources with one another, so that we all recognize, like, I'm not in this by myself. There are other people who are doing this work, and there's plenty of work to be done. So it doesn't have to be about competition. It's about collaboration. Yeah. So and and when you don't you don't have to be a service provider who is doing everything you can have your niche area and stay really good at what you're doing as a service provider and then make referrals to others who are doing good work in other places so um, so yeah I, I feel privileged that I get to be that hub of bringing everybody together and then sharing those resources back out it's yeah, fantastic so, in doing research for this podcast, I was really excited to learn about a presentation that you gave regarding uh, trauma and resiliency, because so many times, so many of our adult clients, um, we see that they've had some really intense trauma. So, maybe just talk about talk about that presentation a little bit and what happens when we don't um, kind of treat the trauma and how that affects the individual. Yeah, so um, what you're referring to was a project I was part of um, that was a statewide initiative. So Governor Kasich had put out some funding for strong families, safe communities. And this was following the shootings in Newtown back in, gosh, 2013-ish, give or take. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And really, Governor Kasich had come back to our community across the state when I say community, the, the state saying, mm-hmm. um, let's not have a city in Ohio be the next blown up media portrayal of what goes wrong. Let's really be proactive and try to think about how we help people who are in need before they get to such a drastic measure of crisis. Um, and so the, um, the request for proposal that went out really said, how do you build on the resources that are in your community already and services that are already out there, um, but offer them in such a way that is different and um, addresses this this set of people who might accidentally fly underneath the radar. 
Um, so the project that I was part of was in partnership with a number of different organizations. Hamilton County Developmental Disability Services was the lead on it, and they um, took a trauma approach. So we offered training that was um, serving people with complex needs, and then and that was really focused on what does trauma look like and what can we be doing when we identify that somebody has had some traumatic experiences. And through that work, we were able to do what's called biographical, I'm sorry, trauma-informed biographical timelines. And then we were able to do this really intensive mapping of a person's history, what all has happened to them, uh, and then what we can do to help support them to build resilience. And so we had a small population of people that we served that were Hamilton County Developmental Disability Services um, identified folks who were in um, their, what they call their, um, oh no, I'm afraid it's not the right name of it, but complex team, crisis team. I'll have to look up what that's actually called. Edit that part out. <laughs> <laughs> Multi-systems team. They okay. were part of the multi-systems team at the Hamilton County Developmental Disability Services. And um, so we were able to do trauma-informed biographical timelines for each of these individuals. And then we pulled together their team and helped them to understand who is this person in the context of what's happened to them, what kind of trauma history they've had, and what are the resilience factors that allowed them to survive through that trauma. And so from that scope of everybody has resilience and in particular these folks who've been through some really heavy traumatic experiences have some great resilience to be able mm -hmm. to still yeah. you know wake up every day and put one foot in front of the other and so what is it that has helped them to survive that and then what can we as a team do to circle around them to build the resilience factors so that they're even more bouncing back from things that happen, right? Because all of us, we have trauma that happens to us on a daily basis. That yeah. car accident that occurred, the person who cut you off on the way to work that gets you really angry, um, the things that happen in your personal life that, sh that are a struggle emotionally. So all of those things that build up over time um, weigh on us. And the more resilience factors that we have, the more likely we're gonna be able to bounce back from those really stressful, difficult things that happen. Um, so it was it was a very neat project. I loved being part of that. Um, the work is still going on. So um, if you take a look at the Hamilton County Developmental Disability Services, you can find some of the featured people who have really done some amazing things with their life, um, despite some really traumatic experiences that they've been through. Um, but one piece of that was the trainings that we were doing around trauma and building resilience in people who have some complex needs. So in terms of the autobiographical timelines, was that, was that challenging to put that together? Um, so trauma-informed biographical timelines are super intensive, both in time and the emotional weight of what you find out about a person. Um, the way that those are organized are you look for as many people who have known the person for long periods of time as possible, plus pulling in the files. and you know, the paperwork sometimes for people who've been involved in systems for years and years and years, you're talking books, you know, mm -hmm. lots and lots of history that you can pull through. 
And then you're literally taking a piece of paper, like a um, long sheet of paper that you would put up on the wall, and you draw a line that's called the line of privilege. And anything that's happened for the person that would have um, been a negative, stressful trauma um, in their life would go below the line. Anything that gave them a leg up, that helped them to be resilient, would go above the line. And then you go prenatally, so you go back as far as you possibly can, understanding who that person's parents are or were, um, and what their life would have been like environmentally during that time. So if there was substance abuse that may have been happening, if they were homeless, um, if they were being, you know, if maybe the biological parent was removed from their life immediately, all of that information that you can find out, and then everything that happens from prenatal through today, you know, at whatever point you're doing that timeline, um, and you track it. And every single time that we did them, the team that we would pull together, whoever could make it for those meetings, would have these aha moments of, oh, now I understand this person in a new way. I have a different, you know, perhaps a the team was very empathetic towards the person, but you have a different understanding of that person in in a way that is really more about um, what happened to them and what it is that makes that person tick on a daily basis and and all of the good stuff and all of the bad stuff kind of morphed into this picture of who the person is today that really takes it away from blaming, shaming, um, you know, the system's perspective of something bad happened and now we're going to react to it. It's really about saying, okay, how can we be proactive now that we understand this person from this trauma-informed perspective to really help them to build up the positive things that they do have in their life so that they can be more successful, so that we can ask them what their dreams are and then we look at what their strengths are and help them get to the place of yeah, you can have your own apartment. Or you want to drive? Yeah, let's figure out what it takes for you to be able to be safe in a car and then get to the place where you can get your driver's license. And what is it going to take financially? And and approach it in a way that's less about all the things that could go wrong to how do we support you to be successful in what may be a a long-term goal, but we're going to think about this in a way that's about you and what you bring to the table and the strengths that you have um, to help you to be successful in those in those goals. So it sounds like these timelines really help to give much better quality of care. Absolutely, absolutely. I think um, one piece that we recognize happens a lot when working with systems and with agencies is we tend to kind of go at things from this reactive place that something happened and we're gonna respond to it. And when we think about trauma-informed care, it's far more about how do we understand this person, who they are and what happened to them, and move forward and and help them to be successful based on resilience factors and based on what we know is gonna be um, building them up rather than reminding them of all of the terrible things that have happened to them. Right, which could cause the trauma to resurface absolutely yeah. yeah and and there are so many things that can trigger a person um because of just everyday things that maybe have nothing to do with the trauma that occurred but when you understand what 
traumatic experiences the person has, you may suddenly have perspective around, oh, this is why every time I pull out a pair of scissors, they're freaking out. Right. You know, or something that you would not associate whatsoever until you really understand the person from kind of that story of who they are um, and what kind of path they've walked over their life. Right. So, so it gives a lot more understanding of how you can do better by engaging with them. You know, what, are, what approach can you take that would lead to more success and help them to be more successful in their life as well? Thank you for listening to today's episode. It's just so important to have so many more conversations about trauma and autism because without that, we really are lacking in giving so many people the support that they truly need. Hopefully, today's discussion helps us to travel down that path. Personally, I appreciate so much all the people I've had the opportunity to get to know that have shown me that truth. And so often, teens and adults with autism struggle with anxiety and as a result don't have the success in their lives. Autism Personal Coach is a unique service in that we help people with autism by working on meaningful, individualized goals in the setting in which they will be used so their anxiety is greatly reduced and as a result they become more independent and successful. To get an autism coach for a loved one or yourself, it is very easy. All you have to do is email autismpersonalcoach at yahoo.com or call 216-336-5889 and request a coach today. On next week's episode, we will have Debbie Picker, the founder of Fairclay, who will discuss how her organization is finding ways to help people with autism meet their transportation needs. Talk to you then.